Confession time. Hey, um, I'm James. Um, I'm the special projects editor of The Guardian. Climate change anonymous at The Guardian. I think I should just quickly confess, I find climate change really hard to engage with. I kind of know it's at risk of killing us all and starving us and causing massive misery. I find it really hard to read stuff to start make it immediate and relate to it. So I kind of understand the mass of people who know they should be interested in this and aren't. Um, that's probably blunter than I meant it, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> to the right of James. Uh, I'm Mary P. Mills. I'm in charge of the multimedia, the video and the podcast. <laughs> Um, and uh, I would consider myself the person who's very, very interested in the subject and a massive hypocrite because uh, shortly after reading the Naomi Klein uh, thing, which completely engaged me and I was totally on board, I then booked a holiday with four flights. Um, so that, that's the kind of stumbling block that I'm, I'm interested in getting over. So our task this week is to convince James. <laughs> if, if, if we fail, you're on the first bus home in the morning. <laughs> This is the biggest story in the world from The Guardian. And on this week's program, we go right to the heart of the problem. Why do we find it so hard to care? The trickiest thing about climate change is is just knowing that it's this issue that we are all actively turning away from. Most of us know that climate change is something we should be thinking about. In fact, we feel a bit guilty about it. But the message isn't getting through. And if it's the message that isn't working, then it's the messenger that's getting something wrong. The Guardian is one of those messengers. If their well-resourced, high-profile campaign is going to have an impact this time, they need to do their homework. Otherwise, they're setting themselves up to fail. So what's been the problem so far? It's it's just this jargon soup. CCS. The words they use just don't make sense to the ordinary person. The House of Commons Energy and Climate Change. The IPCC and the UNFCCC. So, you know, you scan a news story and all you just see are like a, a bunch of numbers and acronyms and, and phrases that you don't know. I don't know what that means. The language is off-putting and the imagery doesn't connect. Endless pictures of polar bears, polar bears, polar bears, polar bears, perched on an ice floe on a tiny piece of ice. The lone polar bears, which is obviously really sad, but it's not something that you can really relate to yourself. In fact, the Guardian banned polar bears right from the start. But communications being what they are, I, I think on day one we did have a polar bear on an ice floe, but really quickly killed it off. Um, the picture, not the polar bear. Uh, the piece launched with an iceberg, and then we replaced it, and then it got that polar bear came back up. And, and if we can't like convince our own staff or like translate their message to our own staff, that, that will keep happening. They come from a different continent. We don't get very close to them. And in a sense, that sums up the problem. Equally, those images of cracked, skeletal cows lying on the savannah, with they're far away from England's green and pleasant land. Ice, snow, glaciers. It may seem obvious in a way, but at the same time it is very, very bizarre that global warming should be presented through things which are polar bears. Icy. I do think it matters very much indeed what we see, because the picture we hold in our heads when we think about something, it's literally what we see in our imagination. The semiotics of climate change tells us a new language is needed, along with a new set of pictures. But we need to go much, much deeper into all this. Look at our psychology to really understand what's going on. 
One of the real peculiarities about climate change is that if you ask people, are you concerned about climate change, the majority of people say yes. A significant number of people say yes, they're very concerned. However, if you go out and you ask people, what are you concerned about, very few people mention climate change. So there's something going on which is complex and unusual with this. George Marshall lays down the gauntlet. He's written all about this, and we'll encounter him more later on. So throw it all at us. Call on the experts, lay it on the table. Is there anything the journalists can do here? Or are we hardwired to shut it all out? Really, climate change, from a psychological point of view, looks like the problem from hell. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning cognitive psychologist. Because this threat is quite remote and abstract. And it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what is happening. And, and a threat that is remote and abstract makes it quite difficult for people to mobilize. In the context of climate change, any move, you know, any sacrifice that people make uh, involves losses. They've got to give, give some things up. Blueberries, your car, that plane flight to the sun. For years, that was the environmentalist argument. And, and those losses loom relatively large. The gains from action that we take, you know, for the environment are remote and uncertain. If you think of a threat to humankind, this is the worst type. Back in the Guardian's climate change therapy room, the team are going in the same direction as Daniel Kahneman. Um, hello, I'm Charlotte Higgins. I write about culture and I'm not an expert on climate change. She's an expert in classics. For me, the, the sort of caring bit is really, really difficult, isn't it? Because we all care in a vague way, but is it a built-in human thing of acrasia that we can't, as Plato said, we can't, uh, you know, dinner today and we don't care about tomorrow? How, how do we get people to really care about people a long, a long way away and care about the future. People tend to get mobilized when their emotions are, are activated. For this, we need to understand the brain is divided into two parts. There's the right side. This is a, a, a basic instinctive uh, evolutionary thinking. The intuitive part. But there's a parallel process happening on the left-hand side. A rational, information-driven system. We think that's in the driving seat, the ever-so-clever logical part. Both work together in the brain, but they're constantly communicating with each other. But the important thing is the emotional side dominates. That's to say, if you have on the rational side very strong arguments, as we do with climate change, but this is a major threat, we, that will not demand our attention unless it is also receiving support from the affective emotional side. Just the plain facts in the case of climate change won't cut it on their own. We need to persuade that right-hand side of the brain to listen by sweetening the message with some emotive content. But what does this mean practically for the journalists, whose job is usually breaking stories? And is this all not a little fluffy for the editor-in-chief 40 years or so in the industry? Normally, my view in life is that if you lay out the facts clearly, um, that is what journalism is for. And I think we've tended towards the scientific, so um, 
it hasn't been so much pulling on the emotional heartstrings. I, th I think two things are different about this. One, one is the urgency, so things have to move very quickly. The, the, the other is the, the sheer complexity of it, that simply leaving it to the facts, I think, is not winning. As journalists, we think of our job a lot of the time as just conveying information, right? And then when people have the information, they will maybe do something about it. But I think climate change is, occupies this very, very different place in our culture. As journalists, the team should be great at tugging at the heartstrings. Still, climate change doesn't get the attention Alan and Naomi Klein feel it deserves. So let's dig in a little bit more. What exactly are they not getting right in their storytelling? The media is struggling with climate change in the same way that we all are. We become engaged with things which are here and now and demanding our attention, have clear causes, things outside of ourselves, uh, especially enemies, people who we can see have an, an intention to cause harm. Our brains, our circuitry responds very strongly to that. But with climate change, it isn't really clear exactly who the enemy is. Is it the carbon floating in the atmosphere? Is it the fossil fuel companies digging it out of the ground? Is it the states stockpiling oil reserves? Is it the businesses producing the ever-growing number of technical devices demanding to be charged every day? And then there's us. We're tangled in all this too. Our responsibility for this increasingly warm world. And rather than dealing with the moral complexity of that, I think we tend to just run away and run away and actively avoid it. So, time for the team in the climate change room to start the hunt. Who should we be pinning the blame on? As investigations editor, James Ball spends his time looking under rocks for these people. You want some bad guys, you want some people in boardrooms. People really hate bankers, execs and that kind of thing. Tobacco is surely the model. And we're kind of about the same distance from the start of companies being aware of climate change as the start of tobacco companies being aware of sort of the problems of lung cancer, etc. You want some bad guys, you want some people in boardrooms. That starts to get people angry and that, that, that should work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'd love to see a sort of gallery of shame where we actually start pulling together these, these filthiest companies. We know who they are from Carbon Tracker. Uh, how they've actually employed people from the tobacco confusion industry. We know masses about them already, but we haven't sort of really gone for them. Yeah, like one a day for 10 days. The team so. continues to brainstorm for George Marshall's perfect climate change enemy. And they're using Daniel Kahneman's emotive language too. Anger, outrage, disgust. But are they the right emotions for the journalists to be triggering? Kahneman didn't specify. And the editor wonders if this tactic might not work for this story. I think bad news stories traditionally have sold. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a sort of cliche to say that good news doesn't sell newspapers. Um, but I think if, it, if it's just bad news um, in an area like this and you can't offer any hope or any um, prospect that there is a solution around the corner, then I think that is um, demotivating. For me personally, when I choose not to click on that story, right, it, it derails my day, you know, it gets us at our core sense of safety. So what do we want to feel? Fear or hope? Um, I broadly agree, but I wanted to put my um, stake very firmly on the side of hope um, because I think this uniquely feels 
overwhelming to the vast majority of people and that there isn't really a way out. And that if you look at the social movements and the election campaigns that are successful, it's the ones that have a alternative that people can see as a possibility. You look at Obama and yes, we can. I mean, the slogan says everything. You look at the Scot- Scotland that got, you know, 16-year-olds out voting. That's because it was something new and something different. When we launched, and I tried to speak to as many people on the climate march as I could, and overwhelmingly, almost everybody came back with the same thing and said, you know, the artwork's beautiful, the message is incredibly important, but um, loads of people who would be really interested in it were just like, I just don't want to read it, it just makes me feel depressed. So I just think we need to focus really sharply on what is the hope in this, what are the positives. That's Charlotte's job. That's your job, by the oh, way. My mind's gone blank as a result of you saying that, Alan. Honestly, <laughs> I agree. I do think, I, I, Emma, I do agree with the with the hopey, hopey changey. But I just, I just don't think emotions are, are binary. <laughs> you know, I think we're complicated beings. So I think, I think, a sort of the potentially a bit of a false opposition. I think climate change is a very unusual issue in that it doesn't lend itself readily to the normal narratives of this is us fighting the enemy and but when we try and force it into that position because clearly we want to mobilize people that's a strong way of mobilizing people we give it a simplicity which is actually um, well it's it's not it's not true to the issue it's it's more complex than that it's very important with human psychology to understand that we pay attention to things, but we also actively don't pay attention to things. We have to have a process for disregarding things. Even when people are confronted with direct evidence of climate change, even when it's literally knocking down their own houses, people have an amazing capacity to disregard the evidence of their own eyes. Our mind might just outright ignore it, reject it, stubbornly refuse to pay any attention to it whatsoever. When I interviewed people on the New Jersey seashore five months after Hurricane Sandy, nobody there could recall for me the last conversation they'd had about climate change. Why? Well, not because they didn't believe in climate change. Uh, Many of these people did. It was because it wasn't considered a suitable thing for you to talk about. And in a way, that stands to reason. If you are recovering from an extreme weather event, you don't want to start telling each other a story that this might be the beginning of something more serious, which might, which might come again. So people create optimistic stories. The team has heard the psychologists learn the pitfalls. What are they going to do with that? Breaking up the therapy circle, they spring to their feet. Armed with colored markers and post-it notes, now is the chance to put these learnings into practice. Time for jargon-free, positive stories. Come on, team. Here's your chance to come up with something that will cut through. I hate to say this, but we should perhaps incorporate cats. Cats against coal. (laughs) For sure. One of which is the amazing viral video, which we know very hard to make viral. Dancing, a dancing, dancing babies. The whole point about this is that it's you just pick an extraordinary human achievement, Uh, something that you just can't help but wanting to share because it's just amazing. Well, I think I think we should be doing lots of everything. I mean, it's really it's the fascinating thing about being a journalist at the moment is that almost everything counts as journalism um, because we're making it up as we go along. I mean, who who you know. Ten years ago, if you had told me that I would be talking to you for a podcast, I think I'd have been quite dubious about that. But here we are. And some of the ideas, you know, mainly the younger members of the team were so 
uh, you know, here's something I've knocked up in the last five minutes that involves a bit of Elgar. Stuff like people just pianists playing a 30-second staggeringly kind of hard piece of music, or um, like if you see someone really amazing doing beatbox, just like, wow, a kid on a skateboard. I think most of the older journalists in the room, up to about three or four years ago, would have said, well, that's not journalism. It, it's, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. You know, this, someone's playing this violin, it's kind of like, this is an amazing thing, it doesn't need fossil fuels. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah that's We call it the Sophocles Project. Okay, so how, where are we time-wise? We've good. Well, we've absolutely cracked that. We're going to solve climate change with that, I'm sure. And before lunch, I suppose from my own perspective, it, I've started to care a bit more as I've encountered different ways of storytelling. And actually, this might be one of the slightly mad ideas that no one's allowed to utter outside the room. But the things that have engaged me most, actually, oddly enough, have been science fiction and. You know, Jeanette Winston and Margaret Atwood writing about futures that are affected strongly by climate change. What happens in the imagination, I think, is profoundly powerful. And so I would be interested in finding some apparently non-journalistic, powerful ways of changing people's imagination. Perhaps it's no surprise that The Guardian's piano-playing, gallery-going editor had right from the start thought about looking to the arts for inspiration. You know, if you believe that art and artists are there to say uh, powerful and uh, deep things about our condition, then they're very good people to, and natural people to approach. They know emotion. You know, someone like Anthony Gormley, who I know, um, he's thought about this very deeply. He's gone on Arctic cruise ships in order to see for himself. And I, th- I think there is something very powerful and elemental about the imagery that he's produced. You can make a difference simply by making things. The man himself, Anthony Gormley. Here is this thing that didn't exist before. It now does. That is a fundamental act of hope. It's a fundamental belief that there can be a future. I, I don't think that um, art can be used uh, for propaganda. I think that's the end of art. However, we need a cultural shift. I think art is intrinsically political. It intrinsically questions uh, you know, how, how and what we think. And I guess, yeah, art in reflecting the wider issues of of climate change, whether it chooses to image it or not, is a force for the cultural change that I hope will allow us to make uh, those policy decisions that actually have to be made by our leaders, but under our pressure. And we know now where this has ended up. Mobilization. As humans, our greatest moments are when we show collective purpose and um, cohesion, not division. And there is within that, I think, an optimistic narrative that would be very appealing to people. The team gave it a good shot with the viral videos. The artists are getting somewhere by connecting emotionally. But to really get past the hardwiring problems, the solution is mobilizing the people. Something much more basic, possibly obvious to engage people on climate change 
You have to involve them. I think the big selling point really on this is not that this is a chance to settle old scores, but it's actually a chance to build something new and, and optimistic about how we can start to come together. So I think people are longing for ways that they can get involved that are concrete, but are more than just changing their light bulbs um, and making individual lifestyle choices. Let's all pull together. Let's, let's try and make a better world. I think people really care. I think there's a, the perception that they don't care is in some ways a false perception that's peddled by the people who are trying to block action on climate change. And that overwhelms the sort of day-to-day -day story of people's lives that isn't being told, that people are actually making good choices as much as they can. Of course people care. Of course people care. They're not stupid. Um, and people have read enough of the science to feel great anxiety about the future of the species. Um, so it would be weird and irrational not to care. But that is, that's different from being able to do anything about it. It's one of the things we can do as journalists. Um, we can raise the alarm. And if our politicians aren't acting like this is a crisis, then, then we have a moral responsibility to do so. I've come to believe that there is something more interesting going on um, and that if a divestment movement did snowball and that there became a societal moment in which it was not very respectable to have your money in companies which show no interest in changing or behaving responsibly, then I think the picture could change quite radically. Let's hope so. With just weeks left at the helm, Alan's still got a ways to go. It's almost fetish on two degrees. To me, is a dangerous obsession. Next week, attacks. The whole intellectual basis of the campaign seems to me to be a very strange one. We'll hear the Guardian's attempt to bat off these criticisms and to find out if they're making headway with their ultimate goal, to get Welcome and Gates to divest. The biggest story in the world is narrated by me, Alex Krotowski. It's produced by Alana Chance, Lindsay Poulton, Matt Hill, Nabila Shabir, and Lucy Greenwell. Sound design is by Chris Wood. Head of audio is Jason Phipps. And the executive producer is Francesca Panetta. Subscribe. 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 <laughs>